0: This is, is the Bristol, Bristol Cable. Cable. I was a premature baby in the same hospital where the baby is decomposed because Israel didn't allow electricity. What does Hamas have anything to do with incubators? I'm really lucky that I didn't have snipers pointing their guns at my incubator. And you see me, I'm alive. I'm a human being. Those babies also had a future.
1: I'm Neil Mags, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community owned media, the Bristol Cable. As the conflict in Gaza reaches beyond a hundred days, in this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, We talked to Salma Najjar, a 24-year-old law graduate living and working in Bristol who was born in Gaza. She's a Palestinian activist. She recently held to organise the vigil for victims in the Palestinian War and the Holocaust Memorial Day, organised in conjunction with the Jewish organisation NAMOD. Since the 7th of October attacks, her family's been heavily affected. She has lost a cousin and a nephew who died as well. The stories that you're going to hear are quite shocking. So, we probably advise if anybody's under the age of 18 not to listen to this. We delve a bit into the politics, but it's more about the human impact told through the eyes of somebody who is from there and has family deeply affected by the terrible situation that's happening there. Please strap yourself in, sit back, and enjoy. Hi, Selma. Hi, Neil. How are you?
0: Well, I'm good. How are you?
1: Very well, thank you. And I, I want to say firstly, right from the word go, thank you ever so much for agreeing to talk to me today. You know, I appreciate it. it's a very, yeah. very difficult time for you and the m- members of your mm-hmm. family. So yeah, so most appreciated for you giving up time to talk to me. And it's sort of, it's a, it's a tricky place to know where to start really. But I think for me, the most important thing probably to touch on first of all is like, how you are how you're doing, I know you 've got family in Gaza uh, you know as we record this interview they're affected by, on the ground by what 's going on so how how are you feeling at the moment?
0: Yeah, um, first of all, thank you so much, Neil, for inviting me to hear a Palestinian perspective and to share the human side of the Palestinian experience, because I feel like a lot of people, they see us as just a point on the map that's just like a conflict, and they don't see us as human beings that are also grieving and suffering. Yeah, my family's in Gaza at the moment, and it's been really difficult because I feel that We're not given the space as Palestinians to grieve our anxieties. It feels like we constantly need to advocate for ourselves and raise awareness constantly. So sometimes it is draining, but I'm as good as as I can be in general.
1: Sure. Sure. And you're age 24. So you're a law graduate in Bristol. Yeah. Have Have you been in Bristol long?
0: Yeah, so I've been here for nearly five years. I did my bachelor's here, and now I'm doing my master's in training as a solicitor.
1: Okay. And you're, you you got a quite bit of an American twang a little bit in your acting. Yeah. Did you learn English in an American school?
0: I used to live in the States, actually.
1: Okay. How do you sort of fit in with Bristol then? Do you understand the Bristolian droll? But
0: I think it takes a while to actually get into what I love about Bristol is such an activist city and everyone's opinionated about something, whether it's human rights, animal rights, everyone has their own niche and thing that they care about a lot. So it is easy to, to fit in in Bristol in the sense that you do find your crowd easily. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't really know much of the British slang, so I hope I don't hear some of that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Bristolian slang as well. I'll I'll keep that to a minimum. You mentioned about Bristol being an activist or protest city. And since you've been here for your five years, you know, if we just parked Palestine for one minute, have you been involved in different types of activism, going to different sort of protests in the city since you've been here?
0: Yeah, of course. I'm part of the Bristol-Palestine Alliance, which is the umbrella um, for other organizations, such as the Palestine Solidarity Campaign and the Friends of Palestine and UWE, the University of the West of England and University of Bristol. So we just like, organize, organize local demos. So I've been involved in that and trying to do different things besides protesting, like vigils. I organized a recent vigil, on Holocaust Remembrance Day with my Jewish friends. And we said, never again for anyone. And we just talked about how our, our suffering is intertwined as Jews and Palestinians. And it was really beautiful. So that's the these things that I'm involved in.
1: And, and, and how do you feel as a, as a Palestinian seeing people supporting the cause? I protested that, you know, that don't necessarily have a family connection. Do you see that as people showing solidarity? Do you sometimes mm-hmm. feel that people have a... And there's a, there's a criticism sometimes I think in certainly in Bristol of people sort of jumping on social causes and protesting when they don't always understand the complexity of things. What's your kind of take and your kind of feeling about people that that, that get involved?
0: Yeah, I think with Palestine, it's been something that's been pushed aside for so many years that people don't feel okay talking about i mean people don't feel okay talking about it in the workspace or mm. outside and there's this tension and i think it is really beautiful seeing people recognizing me as a person and my cause because for such a long time I'm, i mean i've lived in six different countries and bristol's you know uh, the uk is the sixth one so oh, wow. i've okay. experienced yeah. different kinds of racism and a lot of people, even So you said, you said you've you experienced
1: racism in most racism. of those countries for, for being from where no. you're from?
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot of countries. And I think that in, in general, people, when I would say I'm from Palestine, people would be like, oh, what is that? I, I don't know where that is. And it would be hurtful when people wouldn't know anything about where you're from. And maybe they'd point on the map and say, oh, it's not on the map. I don't see it. And sometimes I would get bullied and people would laugh. And now seeing- the whole world knowing what palestine is is a big big step and i think in general palestine is not a cause where it's easy to get into so it is surprising in a good way to see people getting involved because if it's you know how see people see it in the media saying it's yeah. controversial it's def- yeah. i
1: mean it's definitely been I, w- I would say in circles on the left uh, and you know certainly if you went to a labor party conference when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. There's a lot of Palestinian flags and it's become a cause by people on the more, the left-left. But I think you're right, probably for people outside of sort of political activism, the understanding of the knowledge of what's been going on in that part of the world. And as you said, even pointing at Gaza, you know, on a map, a a lot of people (laughs) up up until now probably wouldn't be able to. And and, and why is that, do you think?
0: I think it's because people here the middle east is a conflict zone and they think it's just a regular thing oh syria is just getting bombed and you know palestinians and you know israel they've been fighting for decades and it's just a normal thing why do we need to think about that i think it's the also a part of the dehumanization in the process of colonialism of people suffering you know in, d- in different countries thinking it, it, oh, it doesn't just... affect
1: it doesn't affect us so it's not important kind of yeah. mentality yeah
0: yeah yeah definitely It feels like oh it's just another brown kid being bombed kind of thing and that's why you try to have conversations where i try to tell people growing up in Gaza, it's not normal for us to be bombed. It doesn't feel normal. We have dreams. We have, you know, just normal things that we want to do as human beings. And we didn't choose this life. I didn't choose to be born in Palestine. That was just my fate. And I wish people would see that human aspect of it. And I think now, unfortunately, it's taken a lot of such a, you know, the genocide happening in Gaza for people to see that.
1: If you can, let's talk a little bit about your childhood. You were born and raised in Gaza. How old were you when you left?
0: Around eight years old.
1: Eight years old. Are those memories fresh? what, What are your earliest memories from one to eight?
0: Well, I used to live in Gaza before Hamas took over. It was when the PLO were in power. And it was a little bit different back then in the sense that We didn't have a full blockade. I was able to move around from Gaza through the Sinai Desert into Egypt if there were like bombings. And the bombings were not as severe as it is now. But the memories are very vivid because up until you're seven, eight years old, those are your childhood memories that you don't forget.
1: Are they all traumatic memories? Are they good memories? Is it a mix of both?
0: Yeah. That's an interesting question. I think for me, Gaza is the most beautiful place on earth, and I miss it a lot. I, there's something really special about the people there. They're just so full of life, and I miss my family. I had an apartment, and we all lived. Every cousin of mine lived on a different floor, and you see people in Gaza. There, I don't know if you've ever seen the videos, but they're always playing around in the street. Yeah, and children in Gaza love to play, and that was my entire childhood. And of course, there were bombings, but. When you're a child, you don't fully grasp the death. I don't think you I don't the think reality, as a child. Yeah, think, yeah. Yeah. I don't think I was really scared, but I think there were physical signs of of stress, but because of lack of healthcare and different things, but I think the source of stress was for me. Obviously every child is different was when there were bombings, I would see my family looking really scared and I just didn't really understand fully what's going on, but looking at my parents' face, the fear, knowing that they're scared and I almost needed to protect them and pretend, oh, everything's fine. Because as parents, like, why are they so worried? And I think another source of stress for me was when I was moving from Gaza to Egypt, I had to go through searching uh, by the IDF. And that was really quite traumatic for me. As a child, it was kind of like- You can
1: remember that, that's the Israeli Defense Forces. And so you can remember that quite vividly.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember it a lot because as a child, you're not really taught anything. You just live it. You just live every single day knowing that you're under occupation. And it's a very dystopian, surreal experience. And I think that's why so many people don't relate to people in Palestine or Gaza because- how can you relate to people that have been under a blockade for like, you know, nearly 20 years?
1: Yeah. And, and I think you make that. Let, let's get into that. But I think before that, you just made a really good point, which is that and, you know, even in my question, really, it's around, you know, what was your childhood like for one to eight would have been traumatic. Is that anybody that I've probably ever spoken to that's been around conflict or war zones, you know, as children? kind of what you just said really it's like well I have some really good times as well it was kind of I had a connection I was a kid I didn't quite sort of understand and I think there's yeah that, that's why people always get confused why people want to return to their homeland but you know say like people from this country you know, Well, why would you want to return this because that's where people are from that's where family is that's where golden memories are and then well, there's the good stuff as well that sort of gets missing sometimes in these conversations yeah.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, in, in Palestine, you have the amazing food, you have the nice weather, you have the beach as well, and Gaza is so beautiful. And But then it's also the sad, the sad side of being under a blockade and, you know, remembering that you don't have freedom of movement. Even school, I, I grew up in the Christian uh, quarter in Gaza. And I remember Christmas was so much fun back home. And I was raised by like nuns in school and they were really, really strict Christian schools. We we live in Orthodox Christian communities Mm -hmm. and they're, you know, very strict, but it was, it was a beautiful experience being in your own country with your own people and having people understand you. And when you're ripped away from that, it is really painful, especially when you know you're not allowed to go back home. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. We can not also make the presumption that people listening are, are fully aware of the historical context of some of this stuff and, mm-hmm. and what where Gaza is now, you know, it's been a term coined in the media, an open-air mm-hmm. prison, that people are effectively primarily sort of refugees that are kind of locked in by, by the sea and... Just give us some sort of historical context of that. So this sort of followed and people swelled into Gaza, were effectively sort of kettled into that part of Israel after the Arab-Israeli conflict and then following the Six-Day War in 1967. So there's a lot of political backdrop to this as to how this came about. Can you just give a sort of snapshot of, of, of that for me?
0: So, you know, during the Balfour Declaration, you know, a Jewish state in Palestine was offered by the... British. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think a lot of sometimes, you know, British people don't understand how much the, the UK has had an impact on Palestine. And, um, so after you cannot create a homeland for another people when there's already people living there. And this essentially what happened in Palestine. And, um, a lot of people were, driven out by Zionist militias in a very brutal way during the Nakba. And unfortunately, what we're seeing in Gaza is very brutal, but it's basically a second Nakba where people are just being driven out. Now my family who are from the city of Gaza are being driven all the way to Rafah. So that's what happened during the Nakba. I'm not from Gaza. I'm actually from a place called Yavne and Yafa, which are in Tel Aviv. And the names of the cities of Palestine have changed. Over the years since the colonization of Palestine, and my family members now they're refugees, you know, in Gaza, but they're from m- several different areas. And I think eighty percent as of most people,
1: Gaza- yeah, eighty yeah. percent or most people in Gaza would be in the same situation would have not be from Gaza originally; would yeah. have been moved to Gaza, yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. And we were driven from our homes. So, you know, I was my grand, my great grandpa built a beautiful house in what you call now Tel Aviv. And it's, that's the thing is that every city in Palestine that is, you know, under Israeli occupation yeah. You know, had to experience severe destruction. And, you know, I wonder now what happened to that house that I was supposed to inherit. Is it demolished? Is there a settler living there? Where are the settlers from? Are they from Europe? Are they from Morocco? Where Where are they from?
1: I I, re- I watched a documentary recently. It was actually with third generation settlers who were kind of told... That it was arid land, there was people not living there. We built it and we built the trees from the earth. And it was this, and this sort (laughs) of propaganda had sort of been passed along the line that that they basically kind of went back and looked at and went back to different areas where they were from, researching things. And it was like, well, you know, that was a house there that was built over there. And and they were actually quite shocked themselves as if they felt that they'd sort of been lied to by their kind of grandparents, that they were effectively taking over a land that was empty predominantly. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's the thing is that with. Zionism, it relies on lies, it relies on deceitfulness, it relies on dehumanizing the other person. The first Jewish, really, really close Jewish friend I made was after October 7. And he reached out to me to say, hey, I want to meet more Palestinians. And he was a settler in Palestine. And then he lived in America his whole life. He's he's an American Jew. And when yeah. he moved to Palestine and saw for himself what is being done to Palestinians in the West Bank, he was so shocked that his, his whole world has been broken. And the thing is, with Zionism, your whole life is about moving to Israel, supporting Israel, and it's like very embedded in your identity. So for people like him, for his whole reality to be shattered... It was it was traumatizing, mm. and when I would speak to him, he would tell me, you know, I see you as human now. I, I didn't see Palestinians as human before, and that that was painful because I didn't really realize, despite what I've been through, how severe the indoctrination is. And I think through my relationship with my Jewish allies and breaking that fear and that fear mongering that Palestinians, you know, they hate Jews, and that's why there's conflict. Yeah, I think that really that is that is healing in general. Yeah,
1: and of course, there's an assumption that Palestinians and there's certainly an assumption that Jewish people take a particular position on this, which isn't actually true, is it? That's just perhaps the people of who get course, more of an wow. airing. You know, there are organisations in Bristol, um, Jewish organisations that are against you know against the notion of Zionism.
0: Of course, I mean, I've been hearing those propaganda for a while to the point where. I asked my mother, do you know, do, do Palestinians, do, do, did they hate the Jews, you know, before the Nakba? And she pointed at the neighbor's house and she said, Salma, do you hate our neighbors? And I said, no. And she said, well, that's how we live together. We They were our neighbors and it was just normal. We were all Palestinian. Yeah. If someone wanted to borrow sugar, we would share it. If someone wanted our kids babysat, we would, you know, we would have a community together. So it's it's very painful because... Palestinians and Jews are cousins, and it's not as simple as Palestinians hate the Jews because that was very different from what history showed between our unification.
1: And you and you mentioned the Balfour Agreement and this sort of notion of a state for Jewish people, yeah. but there, you know there were other parts of the world people talk about going back to the land where the Jews kind of came from. You know there were other options. That were presented, Uganda Uganda being one. So there was no actual, there was no actual kind of, you know, sense that it was necessarily going to be where modern day Israel is anyway.
0: Of course. I mean, the Zionist project doesn't really have to do with the Jewish safety. Theodore Herzl, who was the father of the Zionist movement, he was an atheist. So as one says, you know, he didn't believe in a God, but he believed that God gave him Palestine. So it's, it's what I'm trying to get across through my activism is breaking the narrative. And one of, one of those narratives is the idea that Jewish safety and Palestinian freedom is, are not intertwined. It's the opposite. Yeah, And I want people to understand that when you put people against each other and fear monger, that's when things go wrong. And I think that there needs to be more unity. And I'm seeing that more in the London protests and I'm making more Jewish allies. And yeah, it's been really good.
1: Since the 7th of October attacks, you have had family that have been directly affected by mm-hmm. bombing mm-hmm. In, in Gaza. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I a few days after October 7, I was seeing, you know, these horrific videos and a lot of people tend to share these videos of civilians being targeted because, as we know, Israel has been uh, targeting civilians and that's been uh, clear as day through reports and the ICJ decision that Israel has genocidal intent. And I opened my phone to see my little cousin being surrounded by dead bodies and it was really hard to it was it was really hard to think to see him that way because when i was scrolling through my phone i was actually scrolling through videos and then i held back for a minute i said he looks familiar to me and his face looked so pale that it didn't and because he's my family member because i know him Personally, I could see the anguish in his face. I could see the pain. He lost his best friend. And I've lost several family members. My pregnant cousin, she was running away from the bombs from her house in Rafah, And she went to shelter at the hospital. And unfortunately, the hospitals had become the most dangerous place in Gaza. And uh, she was sheltering at Al-Adwa Hospital, which was bombed. And then Israel Came with a bulldozer and basically crushed her to death. And um, Reem and her baby have both passed away. Right. So um, and then I have two other family members that were killed by IDF snipers in Gaza. And life feels a bit dystopian in general because everyone's living their life normally, like during Christmas, or and then you think about like my school which was a christian school was bombed like my church that i grew up at um in gaza was bombed and we can't celebrate you know with our family members and they they don't get to celebrate and it feels like you're in another world and mm. then you have to control your your anguish and be strong and continue to tell people like your your story, like I am doing today. But it's important to make Palestinians feel like they're listened to.
1: So you keep keeping in regular contact with your family at the moment? No,
0: well, there's no electricity, so I didn't hear from my family in over a month and the last time that I heard from my family. They went all the way to the sea in Gaza, which is quite far away from where they're like staying in the tents, just to tell me that they're hungry. And they were crying and saying like, I'm really hungry because of, you know, Israel is collectively punishing people like my family members for something that they have nothing to do with. And their children, like a lot of these, you know, my second cousins are children. And it breaks my heart that I can't even I can't even feed them. I, I can't get them out. I can't, I literally cannot do anything.
1: And that's the fundamental yeah. point, isn't it, really? Which is that people that, you know, are not in any way, shape or form, activists or terrorists, army, anything, just, just normal, normal civilians, ordinary people going about their daily lives, to see and to know and be connected to people that are literally dying. But this becomes a sort of Twitter debate between people. Yeah. And it seems to be very polarized, people taking the position of the Palestinians, people taking the pro-Israel, it just becomes this coffee table debate by people that are miles away, unaffected by it all. That must really, really irk, because it sort of pisses me off a little bit, if I'm honest with you anyway, from from where I am, but, you know, let alone anybody in your position.
0: Yeah, to be honest, like, so many times when I think about it, I am speechless because I've had several hate crimes against me in the UK that I've um, spoken to the police about. And it's just like, you're trying to keep yourself together and have a normal life and pay your bills and, you know, do your studies while also grieving and knowing that, you know, you're living in a country where they don't necessarily support your human rights. And a lot of British people really do support us. And they they feel really sorry of what's happening to people in Palestine and Gaza. But at the same time, it's like, like, for example, after the Palestine protest, when I was in London, I had someone shout that all people in Gaza are responsible for October 7. And I looked at him, and I was like, already extremely feeling very vulnerable. And I said, what do the children in 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 gaza what do they have anything to do with it or and i think he didn't expect to meet someone that is from gaza and when he looked at me he just looked shocked like i've i told him i'm from gaza and like a lot of propaganda really impacts people to the point where they do they do just see you as a irrelevant person in a map that's just being bombed constantly for a few months it's not relevant to them. But I think when people see the human aspect of it, then it doesn't really go away that easily. And I said something to him. I said, okay, well, I was born at two of the hospitals. One one of the hospitals that I was born at and the hospital that I was in an incubator at, Al-Nasr Hospital, were both bombed. And I I was a premature baby in the same hospital where the baby is um decomposed because um Israel didn't allow electricity. And I said, what do what does Hamas have anything to do with putting off electricity to incubators and premature babies? And I'm really lucky and I think you know it's dystopian to say that I'm really lucky that I didn't have snipers pointing their guns at my incubator. And you see me, I'm alive, I'm a human being, those babies also had a future.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. the you know, and this is not in any way or form to condone, you know, mm-hmm. we'll condemn that, the attacks on the 7th mm-hmm. of October, but a lot of people are tuning into this stuff now, the kind of decades of people being subjugated to a point where they're kind of left that have tried. I've heard a lot of people say like, well, you know, that's not the answer to anything. You should try the legal means and this and that and the other. But, but of course that, that has happened and at every turn that has fallen on deaf ears, hasn't it? So if you leave people with mm-hmm. no option, no option, than to fight, then it's no surprise that they're going to. Um,
0: Yeah. I was working for an organization called Lawyers for Palestinian Human Rights based in London. And for several years now, I would, you know, collate a bulletin of different atrocities every single month that are happening in the West Bank, not in Gaza. Children getting shot at, you know, 11 year olds being sexually abused in prison in military court as well. They don't even get proper human rights or a lawyer. I have friends that message me and say, hey, um, my cousin in the West Bank was just kidnapped and he's 11 years old. Can you do something about it? And I say, I cannot do anything about it because I've been working with this organization and I had, I had a vision that, you know, with my law degree, I can really help my people. But then I came to the reality that that's not the case. It's not really making an impact, and that's what drove
1: you. That's what drove you to go into law to 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 try and make an impact for your people.
0: Yeah, that's. I didn't really want to do law. I actually the only reason why I got my law degree was I was convinced that if I do my law degree and not not deal with politics or anything, I will help my people. I could take Israel to court at the ICJ or ICC, and you know have our human rights and right to return because ultimately I want to return back home. I want to return to Palestine. And as a Palestinian, I'm not even allowed to go to the village where my grandparents were kicked out of. I'm virtually banned from every place besides Gaza. So you're saying that
1: your legal aspirations and your ambition and your calling to do that for you, it feels futile now. It feels as if law is, you know, regardless Mm -hmm. that doesn't shift or change anything.
0: No, it just feels like you're endlessly talking to avoid it doesn't feel like anything is going to change, and whether it's legal or whether it's i mean my my niche is basically law, like I love law it's, it's everything to me, and I really enjoy it. I enjoy helping people you know doing pro bono work and but then you think. How how the only thing I could really do is try to feed my family back home. But then it's like, how long are they going to take to survive until a bomb hits their home? So it's like this guilt of I'm not doing enough. And the idea that everything you've worked towards, I've been I've been doing law for like, you know, eight years. And yeah.
1: And, and let's talk about that. I mean, you know, because we can get into, and I'm sure some people listening will feel that have, you know, different positions on this stuff. And it's deeply, it's, you know, there's elements of it that are deeply political and deeply ideological. But, but as we discussed, there's also a human side to it that, regardless of who and what you are, has kind of impact. But there is also a legal context to this. Um, yes. You know, there, it isn't just an opinion to say that what's going on in Gaza is pretty sickening at the moment. I mean, you've just mentioned it. So we have got the ICJ ruling. Human Rights Watch described their ruling as a landmark decision, and it puts Israel and its allies on notice that immediate action is needed to prevent genocide and further atrocities against Palestinians in Gaza. Um, Mm -hmm. They've said the court's clear and binding order raised the stakes for Israel's allies to back up their stated commitment to a global rules-based order By ensuring compliance with this watershed ruling, they have stopped short of calling for a halt of all operations in Gaza, but they have told Israel to take all measures to prevent genocide. That is a pretty big calling. What was your response to that?
0: I was a little bit apprehensive about the decision at the ICJ because, you know, the ICJ is like a part of the UN, it's an extension of the UN. So, I feel like the court was being challenged that day and international law itself was being challenged that day. And you're talking about a decision to ultimately try to stop the genocidal acts in Gaza, but then they don't call for a ceasefire, which is the only way that you can stop the atrocities happening. I mean, you're seeing the level of destruction. Mm. And I was extremely disappointed because obviously that was a loss for Israel, but at the same time, they have full impunity to keep doing what they're doing constantly for so many years. They break they break UN resolution after UN resolution and they don't commit to international law. So it didn't go or- far
1: enough for you then? You, you, you felt it should have no. gone further, yeah.
0: They definitely needed to call for a ceasefire and I felt like the fact that they didn't really spoke a lot. And I think it's the fact that they don't want to hold the US accountable for aiding and abetting genocide in Gaza through its support of Israel. So I was not surprised because I felt like politics really played a decision in the ICJ, but I was extremely disappointed and a lot of Palestinians were very disappointed. And I genuinely did cry after that court because ultimately everybody in Gaza have been begging. I mean, you have them turning on their phones and trying to get any electricity to see if the court is calling for a ceasefire. So, um, yeah, I am disappointed in that decision for sure. And there was
1: some reaction to that. So the U.S. State Department basically said that the ICJ's provisional rulings are in line with Washington's view that Israel has the right to take action to ensure the terrorist attacks of October the 7th cannot be repeated in accordance with international law. And um, they've gone on to say, we continue to believe that the allegations of genocide are unfounded and note the court did not to make a finding about genocide or call for its ruling. So it's stepping forward. It's Mm -hmm. making a clear line that they are watching and keeping an eye on what's going on. But at the same time, it doesn't really give clear guidance.
0: It's, It's getting worse and worse. I mean, the decision was to me, not only disappointing, but unfathomable considering the level of destruction in Gaza. You're talking about you know, only two hospitals left. I mean, I mean, I think over 36 hospitals have been bombed in Gaza. So, I mean, churches, mosques. You know, the 12,000 children. I mean, I I think that it's Gaza hasn't been livable. The last time I visited Gaza, I I could not handle the situation yeah. there. So, and it's worth I'm making very... that
1: point of the Gaza population. 75 mm-hmm. percent of Gaza's population, two point three million people more than half of whom are children, are displaced. Yeah. I wonder if the more this continues, the more that public opinion is actually turning against the state of Israel and its actions by people that probably would probably would have gone along with it before. Do you feel that in a way, if we're, if we're talking in terms of a winning hearts and minds thing and, and getting mm-hmm. the message out, actually people are aligning a bit more with the Palestinian cause, I, I feel, do you sense that?
0: No. Yeah. I think that when you see children getting killed and women and hospitals being bombed for months in a row, I think we're heading to—is it our fourth or fifth month? I—I I was counting days, and now I don't even know which month we're at. So people are going to feel, you know, the human experience, which is empathy for. You know other human beings that are being subjected to such cruel acts and ways, and it's on full display. This is the first time in history where you're seeing uh, like a full genocide in in full view, constantly on social media, video after video, and it's and it's stressful. It's it's str- we we are not programmed to see this and feel so helpless. So I could see even British people are being impacted by it. I have people that come up to me and I just say I'm from Gaza, and they have tears in their eyes, and you know they can't even contain themselves sometimes. So, and some I of these people, not people
1: necessarily people- even sort of politicized people, just kind of ordinary people, because that's what I'm kind of talking about. People that don't yeah. really know what's going on, but just can connect with it on that pure mm-hmm. emotional level.
0: Yeah, of course, I'm seeing people from left, right, but whatever, Green Party, Socialist Party, all asking for a ceasefire in different countries, you know, not just in the UK. I know politics really get in the way of people, but in general, people on the ground, the majority. I think there was a poll in the UK that at least 70% of people in the UK want a ceasefire. So propaganda is not going to work on people anymore because we live in a new age where we have access to so much knowledge. And it's not like the early 2000s or, you know, before where a newspaper comes out and you don't have any access to videos and what's happening on the ground.
1: This is the Avid bit mate. We've got a new campaign at the Bristol Cable. It's called Beyond the Bullshit. And it's basically putting up two fingers to the right wing media, millionaire owned newspapers. Don't buy into their whipping up of division and hatred. Become a member of Bristol's independent community owned media, the Bristol Cable. The obvious devil's advocate question to ask is if calling for a ceasefire or when calling for a ceasefire, the the response would be, because there are still hostages being held by Hamas, is that do Hamas need to let go of those hostages for Israel to agree to a ceasefire?
0: Of course, that's part of a ceasefire is that that was the only way that hostages were getting released is through negotiations of a truce or a ceasefire. And uh, all hostages, including Palestinian hostages and the children that are held, you know, unjustly, illegally in Israeli military prisons should be released as well. The women, the children and, and men too. A lot of people dehumanize men
1: some people start from the notion of Zionism in and of itself or the state of Israel should not exist, which some people do. Is, is that a negotiation? Yeah. Is that a negotiating position to start from?
0: Well, I think Palestinians, they have been working towards a two state solution for a very long time. Um, they're the ones that have been agreeing to it after the Oslo Accords between Arafat and Bill Clinton. So, when people say, you know, Palestinians don't want Israel to exist, it's the opposite. Palestinians are the ones that have been driven from their land. Palestinians are the ones, the only ones that are experiencing genocide. Palestinians have been trying their best to comply with international law to get their own state, which has been rejected by Netanyahu. And he has voiced that recently in an interview saying there will be no Palestinian state. So the existential threat is faced by Palestinians not Israelis. So it's, it's kind of ironic that you see the people that are being occupied are called the aggressor, you know, at times. And then the people that have literally driven these people out of their own homes for 75 years are called the victims. So I think a lot of people talk about things that are not factual, not reality. And I think, I, I think
1: definitely... you're right. I agree. I agree. But there is a, there is it is a fact that pretty much most of the countries that surround Israel don't want them there. They want them to exist in in as a state that they are. So they are I surrounded see. by people. You know, I mean, rightly or wrongly, as you just said, you know, you can debate whether from the Barfall Agreement they should be there at all. But you know, 80 years on, or so, we are where we are, and it, you know, it is a fact that pretty much every country that surrounds Israel would want them not to be there.
0: Well, I think it's because Israel has been bombing different countries, bombing Syria, bombing Lebanon, and you know, as you know, that Israel illegally occupies um, the Golan Heights in Syria.
1: Well, and war was, also war was started on occ- war. Yeah, you're right, but war was also started on Israel mm-hmm. by those countries that you, you know initially that you yeah. listed. Then,
0: yeah, and it also illegally occupied the south of Lebanon, and it and, and there were horrible atrocities. And a horrible campaign of ethnic cleansing that you see in Palestine, and I think when you are ethnically cleansing people and subjecting them to apartheid for seventy-five years, there's there's going to be disapproval or discomfort. Mm. So,
1: so I you don't you don't yeah I get it. So it's a, it's a, and this is the part of the the crux with all this is that some people see this as a, a political geopolitical issue. Whereas mm. others see it, you know, you talk talk to some people more on the right in terms of Israeli yeah. people on the right would say this is just steeped in anti-Semitism. This is like a kind of the ancient, oldest trope.
0: Well, anti-Semitism is a, is a European problem. Mm. You, you can see mass graves of, you know, of, of Jewish people that died because of pogroms all over Europe and you will not find that in the Middle East. So I, I just find it a bit ironic that people are seeking Jewish safety in, in a place where, you know, Jewish people did not have pogroms in, in the Middle East. So, and of course a European it, it,
1: problem has been sort of just chucked into an area. So of course there's, and that's kind of my point really, it's a geopolitical thing that gets construed or misconstrued as being a religious conflict. Well, I'm not sure it is. And, and you yourself, I mean, as an individual, you know, you're, you're from a Christian community.
0: Yeah, so my family, they're Muslim, but I grew up in the Christian quarter in Gaza, growing up in Christian school. So we are very, we don't have religious issues in Palestine. My family members, some of them are Christian. So it's just that when people speak about it like a religious issue, I'm really yeah. sorry, I don't care what religion you are. If you, if you kick me out of my own house and lock me up in the basement, any person would do something about it, you know, would try to keep their home or, or say, hey, can I please have my room back? Mm. So we'll talk about it like a, it's a religious issue. I just find just yeah. it a bit ridiculous.
1: Well, and, and there are parallels, it's obviously completely different, but there are parallels, I think, to, to relate to the British and, and European experience that people can get their head around a little bit. Is the closest that probably we've experienced here is the situation in Ireland, which was again presented as a religious thing, but actually it was about human rights and about conditions and voting rights and territory and echoes of colonialism. And it kind of, people like to simplify these things, don't they?
0: Of course. I mean, you see in 1948, it was not just Palestine that was split up. It was also places like, you know, between India and Pakistan, the Kashmir Territory. and They're still suffering. And it's basically a military zone where, you know, it's a huge area of conflict. So it really has nothing to do with, you know, the way that people like to think of it in a simplified or maybe ironically simplified but controversial yeah. and you know is, like that, not, so is that
1: is that possibly because if that's well yeah. two things is that like a deliberate intentional propaganda thing so people don't really of know course. what the, tr- the truth is and also is that a little bit of a denial from sort of people in the west a little bit we don't want to feel that we're as compliant in setting the ball rolling and as you say Kashmir you know we could pluck Many places across the world where white Europeans created demarcation points, uh, created new states that that's left the echoes of conflict all around Mm -hmm. the world. Is that Mm -hmm. we? Are are we? uh, You know, I say we. I mean, me. I'm I'm white. I'm British. In denial about that stuff a bit. Do you think?
0: One hundred percent. I think that people don't like to feel uncomfortable or feel the sense of responsibility, and ultimately. Zionism, you know, as my Jewish friends say, is anti-Semitic because Winston Churchill actually didn't want Jews in Europe. So he he supported Zionism so he could drive them all towards Palestine. And even after the Holocaust, he actually, there were restrictions on Jewish refugees from Europe entering England. But then why is that? And then there started to be more increased pressure of European Jewish settlers arriving in Palestine. And I think people don't want to admit the reality of the situation and the historical context of it and really look at the nuanced different points of views of what really happened historically up until today.
1: And is that gaslighted a bit by perhaps the current national, I wouldn't just say the current national government, you could say elements of the Labour Party, their position on this, also the media coverage in this country. Is there a a concerted attempt to try and keep the conversation or keep your knowledge at a base level and not go into the depth of historical complexity and responsibility for this?
0: Yeah, I think that um, you do feel constantly gaslit. And that's the problem is that you're, everybody is seeing what's happening as clear as day. But then the government is sitting here and telling you, you know, you're wrong and you're saying free Palestine and you're supporting the genocide of another people because you want freedom, freedom to go back to my own country. It's funny because you have people complaining about refugees, like, you know, Rishi Sunak. He doesn't want refugees, but wanting them to go to Congo or I don't know, he, he's picked some strange countries. And well, yeah. as long as the government is bombing other countries, they don't care about your interests. They don't care about... Well, it's kind
1: of coming back to bite him on the arse a little bit, because if you don't want people to be refugees to be going for the English Channel on, on, on dinghies uh, as is happening. Then maybe don't bomb those countries in the first place, and then that won't create that it's situation. Great. Do you know what I mean? It's just a lot. and I think I do wonder now, and I do see a concerted effort. I'm in the media, I do mainstream media, as you know, as well as mm. this show, but, but I do wonder if some of this stuff isn't working anymore. Actually, like you said about social media, people can sort of bypass the what I would call the sort of traditional gatekeepers of information. That actually, people are seeing this stuff a little bit on. So on, I'm thinking. I don't like, I don't believe this now. And I don't like what I see and what I don't, and I, and I, and I don't like it. And so it's losing its power, perhaps. Propaganda is losing its power. I don't know whether you agree with that.
0: Yeah, I think that propaganda is dying out with the role of social media. But I think people are starting to feel the frustration in the newer generation because they're realizing that the government doesn't actually care about people and about the people's opinions, because people are saying, hey, I want ceasefire. I want this to stop. I don't want my uh, tax dollars or to live in a country where uh, we're sending weapons to a state that is found to be committing uh, genocidal actions, and they're, they're not heard. You know, they're not listened to. And you're seeing nearly a million people. And time and time again, you know, half a million people marching in London and all over the UK. The solidarity is, is very strong in the UK. And nobody is really being listened to. The people are not heard. And I think Palestine scares politicians because it is the cause that is waking people up you know and it's it definitely a having a
1: detrimental effect to the labor party in terms of the muslim vote and so i think it's quite a shaky yeah. ground i think it's quite a difficult position for the labor party to find themselves now they're alienating a lot of young voters you know people of your generation i think that are politically yeah. active on the left a lot of muslims a lot of ordinary people now that are watching this going oh i feel a bit uncomfortable so it's going to be quite interesting to what positions they take on this in the build up to the elect- to the election which is probably going to be in october this year
0: yeah of course i mean With the coming up of elections, people need to stand up and say that we are the people and that we want our voices heard, you know, whether it's where the funding goes or where they're not comfortable with the decisions of the government. You know, Risha Sunak, I don't think he's elected, is he? So it's really unfair that big decisions of foreign policy is being made without the consent of the public. I don't really think a lot of the people really want him. And even, you know, Keir Starmer, it's it's very disappointing to see the change of politics because he was in the Labour Party before and he used to support Palestine with Jeremy Corbyn. But I think people are starting to see through international relations and see through politicians of, you know, when they're advocating for something, do they really mean it? Do they really mean it when they say that they're going to have an extra funding for you know the NHS or things like that. So I think, yeah, people are Palestine is really impacting politically on a, on a very large scale in different areas.
1: And so where where do you think we go from here? Are you optimistic? Do you think we're moving towards the possibility of ending this conflict, possibly a yeah. ceasefire or, or not?
0: Yeah, I think that this fight is a long, long one. I don't think this is a fight for a month or two or I think this is, this is going to take years of fighting for justice and people need to be steadfast and I hope there will be a call for a ceasefire and hopefully that call for a ceasefire will not only prevent, you know, the annihilation of a people, including my family members, but will, you know, be a road of justice for everybody. I, I really care much about what's happening in Congo and what's happening in Sudan and different countries. And I hope this will be like a chain effect chain of, of justice. Bless you, so. And does that
1: surely have to end? I mean, the, the only way this is going to end surely is is with some type of two-state solution, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. 100% in the UK government, they've been making decisions of, I think Kirstarmer said, we don't recognize uh, a Palestinian state. And then because of the backlash, it's working. Backlash does work. There are several companies that, because of people's pressure on the government, there has been um, words that have been retracted, and you're seeing that in the government. Well, they're what's very
1: keen. Going- I mean, they you know they want to be the next government, don't they? So they they do their sort of focus politics, and they work out if something's too unpopular, they will react accordingly. And you know, we can say this is an international issue, but this is right on our doorstep as well, not just with the protests that you're involved in. In the city, you mentioned we're working with NAMOD, which is a Jewish organization in the city. Yes. You're also connected to, you know, we have weapons factories, don't we, in Bristol? Yes. That people are being taking direct action against. And you, there was a court case yesterday.
0: Yes, yes. It was the Elbit 7, 7 defendants that were found guilty for their actions against Elbit. And it was for burglary. And, and yeah, you know, is a,
1: they are a, a, a weapons manufacturer in, based in Bristol?
0: Yes. So it's an Israeli weapons factory. Palestine Action has been upping their game a lot in the UK, in London, and, and several factories have been closing down. I think the UK government has an obligation under international law to protect civilians instead yeah. of you know, sending weapons to a state that is prosecuted at the ICJ. And the defendants, they were found guilty on two counts, all of them. And I think this was mainly a political decision where they, the law is trying to deter people from taking action, you know, against Elbit or just Palestine action in general. I do think that maybe possibly there has been an impact from maybe government opinion on the court because the jury was not very representative of people in Bristol. I don't think there were many, you know, other ethnicities in the jury. Hmm. So, so it was a little bit disappointing because. Um, well, we've we had that, rid- and
1: We've had this before in certain situations that get politicized. I remember after the riots Black in, lives. yeah, yeah. The, before the Black, um, Black Lives Matter, but even, you know, even before then, when they had the riots in Bristol, people would be in, which happened across the country, the ones that started in London. Mm. You know, people would be in charge for nicking chewing gum and things like that when there was all the looting and getting heavy sentences for things that ordinarily you wouldn't do after the Black Lives Matter yeah. protest. You know, as you're yeah. about to say, similar stuff. You know, the laws were being changed around protest, so you know, um, it might sound a conspiracy theory, but definitely when there is politics driving this stuff, yeah, um, people are make a kind of statement.
0: Yes. For sure. I mean, uh, the purpose of law, as you learn in law school, is to act as a deterrence. So if you litter or if you throw a cigarette on the floor, the fine might be way too expensive for what you've done. But the purpose of that is to deter people from doing that action. So it is definitely a political decision to kind of stop the the actions against Elbit that have been been very, very strong the last few years. Yep. I'm not really sure what's in the store of the future for, you know, what's happening at Elbit, but I think that mm. the government really needs to take action themselves to stop selling weapons to Israel.
1: And Elbit is Israel's largest arms manufacturer. It's got nine sites in the UK and Bristol is its main operational facility. So there has been people targeting. And if you do want to find out a little bit more about that, there's a Bristol Cable long-read audio series, Bristol's Murder Factory, so you can listen to that. And back to your family, really, and I think this is probably, will sort of end where we, where we yeah. started, Selma, is mm-hmm. are you, you know, I know you say you can't contact anybody. It must, must feel really, really, I mean, I don't know, it must be just quite difficult sort of the, the not knowing what's going on and, and whether they're safe at the moment, for you, and how do you and how so? How are you getting by? How are you coping? Have you got mechanisms? Have you got good people around you that are supportive? Yeah. How do you get by at the moment? It's,
0: I'm, you know, I'm going to be honest. It's, it's been a difficult journey. The Palestinian community. It's not just me in Bristol. I've been dealing with a lot because Is there are the many
1: situation. in Bristol. Is that what's the sort of size of the Palestinian and Palestinian?
0: Wow. You could say like less than hundred, possibly, but. They are been, enough,
1: enough for you to feel you can put on each other, yeah?
0: Uh, yeah, I think it's, we're feeling very isolated right now. We don't feel supported. And I think when you have students, actually, I would say there's more than a, more than 100. I'm counting the Palestinian community that have been in Bristol for like 50 years and their doctors and nurses and their pediatricians. And so they, they are not very seen because they have to focus on we live our life and survival trying to feed our families and get by while also dealing with the genocide in our families back home. And a lot of us, um, we've dealt with our houses being bombed, including me. So it's where my childhood memories are. And and it's it's very difficult, you know, because we don't know how to support each other and we don't feel like anybody's really listening to us in terms of the government officials or the MPs here not calling for a ceasefire and we're trying to keep ourselves together and it, it is really difficult because we we are trying to support one another but it's also like everyone's feeling so isolated that they they don't even want to go outside or or do anything you know in terms of feeling that joy it's it's very difficult to feel joy when when you're grieving people that you love and seeing mm-hmm seeing everything being destroyed, all your memories. It's like, I I want people to understand what it's like to, when you ask, how are you? I mean, I've been living here in Bristol for a couple of years now, and I love so many places here. And you think about, imagine every inch of Bristol being bombed, you know, your favorite shop, your favorite restaurant, your favorite pub or bar, and the people that you love just being completely annihilated. And I think that it's really hard to answer that question, but I think I have to be strong for my family because if I collapse, then then how am I going to help them, you know, in any way? Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Thank you for asking.
1: No, no, thank you for being really, really honest and candid about your, your experiences. And I, and I guess my sort of final question is really around, around the marches and around the protest in taking place. You've been involved in, in Bristol. Some people could be quite cynical, but you know, what's that going to do? How is that going to affect anything, you know, across the other side of the world, a, a few thousand people in Bristol marching on City Hall, but it helps, you think?
0: Yeah, I think that marching in London is really good and the marches around the world are, I was thinking about the marches and I was thinking we can't stop marching because they want Palestine to die out. The media, they, a lot of the time, they don't report on these marches because they fear the solidarity between the people. And when you see people going outside and you are reminded of Palestine through these people that are marching, then it's it's difficult to ignore. And then people start asking, why are all these people marching? Like, I, I want to know why. And you have people attending and asking questions like, you know, you mentioned Namoud. I'm—I actually my vigil between Palestinians and the Ju- uh, Jewish people in Bristol was actually with Namoud yeah. and right. Benny, who was a great Jewish ally. When we started speaking at the vigil, a lot of people came up to me especially Jewish people, and said, thank you so much for doing this. I, you know, I'm mourning as well as a non-Palestinian. It really, really hurts me to see what's going on and that my government is supporting this, uh, supporting this as a British Jew, as a, you know, as a British person in general. So I think that when people look on the outside, like including, for example, whether you're taking different actions, including boycotting, you're seeing, okay, what's the what's the impact of it? What's the impact of the boycott? But then you're seeing the companies after losing billions are, you know, it's being reported by big news organizations that they are suffering losses. So I think people need to look at things from an outside point of view and know that if you want justice, you have to keep going. And, and keep the- the pr-
1: and keep that pressure up and, and keep raising keep, awareness. Yeah. yeah,
0: Of course, of course. Yeah, you have, when you study oppression in history, whether it's slavery or the uh, Montgomery bus boycotts. I learned about this when I grew up in the States. They actually boycotted the buses for an entire year because they weren't able to sit at the front, you know, as Black people. And imagine in those times boycotting a bus how difficult that is for an entire year until things change and that's what i mean things sometimes the road seems so so long but you just have to keep going
1: this has a universality to it which is about oppression control freedom and i think that's why a lot of people do align with i mean if you go to a Celtic in football for example you go to you know brit celtic have always got I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they always have the palestinian sort of flags up and so they always have done this sense of Kind of freedom fighters around the world united. Do you feel that this is part of a kind of universal struggle?
0: Of course. I mean, I didn't even know that much about the struggle, the deep struggle of Irish people. I knew a little bit of it, but I didn't know the extent of it. I didn't know that they had a forced famine on them. You know, just like what we're experiencing in Gaza, and it's it's global solidarity in general. Because when we say you look at history. And um, you look at what's happened in, in previous genocides, whether it's in Congo and you see Congo suffering today and, you know, Yemen has been starved for a number of years now. And, you know, the, it's being bombed now and the UK and USA governments are supporting it. And then you think, how, when you read a history book, did, did people not learn about what happened in history. And it's not just bad people who are encouraging this, but it's also the silence of good people and people who feel helpless and say, my voice doesn't matter. Yeah. Everyone's voice matters. If you feel like your voice doesn't matter, it's not the case because it takes one person to just speak up. For like when you, for example, go outside wearing a kofiya, you're making me more safe wearing my scarf um, and wearing my identity when I go outside. So it's a, those little things are, are, you know, helping my cause and uh, my human rights just by doing um, small acts of solidarity.
1: Thank you ever so much, Salma. It's been really, really enlightening, interesting, moving, fascinating talking to you. So I, I really, really appreciate you giving up the time.
0: Thank you so much, Neil. It's honestly been a pleasure. It's been really good to just uh, talk about Palestine and get it out of my system. And I yeah. uh, I feel very hurt today. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And i uh, love to to all your, your family and um, friends.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Bye-bye. Many thanks to Salma Najjar for joining us on this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked. And we will be back next time with another fantastic guest and a brilliant topic. I'm Neil Maggs. Big thanks to our production team from the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Ession Noise. Also, Blue Dot for our music.